Welcome to the Family Church Sermon Podcast. Join us each week as we look to the Bible to seek out what it means to love God passionately and love people personally. For more information about our weekly gatherings and how you can be part of our outreach, visit jointhefamily.church. Let's open up to Ruth chapter 4, Ruth 4. We're going to end our time in the book of Ruth today. Then next week, and we'll remind everybody here at the end uh, today, next week we have our Thanksgiving gathering. So we're going to show up for worship together, and we're going to share a devotional of Thanksgiving, sing a song of praise together all in the back here behind me in the, in the fellowship hall. And we're going we're gonna to do communion together, and then we're going to feast and fellowship together. So if you haven't signed up for something, I'm sure Laura will say something. I'm going to call Laura up in announcements at the very end, and we'll say something. There's some good stuff signed up on the list back there, so make sure you sign up to bring stuff uh, next week. And so some things are changing here in the next couple of weeks, uh, which yet again, I'll remind you again at the end of our gathering time, but... Uh, this Sunday was actually, because of our Thanksgiving gathering next Sunday, this Sunday was our last Sunday morning group meeting, probably even for the year, because we tend to take a break during the month of December. And with the upcoming move and things fluctuating, uh, we'll let you know when those groups start back. But uh, our Wednesday night group is going to meet as normal this week uh, but y'all know last week, our, our Wednesday night group didn't meet. We met at the church building, and I'm thankful for everybody that was here that, that was able to come and help. I know not everyone could physically help, but those who were uh, thankful for helping, um, I'm sure uh, uh, you know Dennis and, uh, is, is tired of doorknobs, like we talked about. Uh, we know that Ken is tired of, of putting grates and plates up. Uh, we, we know that uh, Jeannie and uh, Deborah are tired of cleaning upstairs. And so, uh, but I'm thankful that everybody came and pitched a hand. We still have a good amount of work. And so we may have a work day uh, the week of Thanksgiving, but we'll let you know when that happens. But just be in touch with us because there is additional work that still needs to be done. There's going to be a deep clean that happens on the building, but there are things like wiping down chairs and things like that that we'll need a hand with. And I, I just want to, I just want to encourage our church that in this time of just like I don't know, all of us we may be a little bit, we may just be tired, you know. And in this time where Ruth reminds us of just uncertainty and change in life thankful that we get to unite as the body of christ with purpose to do what god has called us to do with purpose and i, I pray that not only our story as as family church but the story in the book of ruth would encourage us that when things don't go according to plan we trust that god really is the god that moves us from ruin to restoration and so let's Pick up. We're going to unpack a big idea today, which is this. Redemption, redemption is here. Redemption is here. Now, what does redemption mean? You know, redemption, uh, anybody, anybody remember Gene, was it Gene Wilder's Willy Wonka and the Chocolate Factory? Was that the name of the actor? I don't know. Anybody ever watch that movie? A little freaky, how they, I always found it weird how the grandparents all like, Never got out of bed, you know what I mean? That, that weird part at the beginning of the movie. Y'all remember, what did, what, did, what did the kid, I forget his name, what, did, what, did, what was the kid's name? Anybody remember? Charlie. 
Um, that's right. They made the weird. They made the weird remake, Charlie and the Chocolate Factory, right? But anybody remember Charlie? What was he looking for? Golden ticket, right? And the golden ticket was was a redemption, so that he could claim the prize of being able to tour Willy Wonka's Chocolate Factory. Right now, last week uh, there was a big lottery jackpot, and uh, Laura and I don't do it. Uh, just kind of personal conviction. Actually, I thought I was like, Lord, you know, if if we purchase that two dollar ticket, and uh, I mean, we'll give ninety percent back. We'll like reverse tithe, you know. But no, here's the thing: like, we didn't do it. It was gonna be a waste of money anyway, and all that. And you probably shouldn't. Uh, it's it's a sense of gambling that you need to be careful with. Uh, but what what are people waiting on in the state of California right now? They're waiting on someone to come with those numbers. As, as a redemption to claim the prize which they've already purchased, right? So today we're going to look at redemption. The redemption is something that is enacted by Boaz, but, but more so the redemption that we see in this chapter reminds us of the redemption we've been given as Christians that we have access to. We don't have to buy a lottery ticket. We don't have to find a golden ticket. We've all been offered a redemption that has been cashed in on the cross of Jesus Christ that's available to you and me. And Boaz's actions today show us how Jesus is the greater Boaz. And so let's look at this big idea today. Redemption is here. We're going to read the first six verses together and then go on from there. So the first six verses, now Boaz, verse one, had gone up to the gate and sat down there and behold, the Redeemer of whom Boaz had spoken came by. So Boaz said, turn aside, friends, sit down here. And he turned aside and he sat down and he took 10 men of the elders of the city and he said, sit down here. And so they sat down. And then he said to the Redeemer, Naomi, who has come back from the country of Moab, is selling a parcel of land that belonged to our relative Elimelech. So I thought I would tell you and say, but in the presence of those sitting here, in the presence of the elders of my people, if you redeem it, redeem it. But if you will not, tell me that I may know, for there is one besides you to redeem it, and I will come after you. And he said, this is the man replying back, he says, I will redeem it. And then Boaz says, the day you buy the field from the hand of Naomi, you also acquire Ruth the Moabite, the widow of the dead, in order to perpetuate the name of the dead and his inheritance. Then the Redeemer says, I cannot redeem it for myself, lest I impair my own inheritance. Take my right of redemption yourself, for I cannot redeem it. What we see here in the first six verses is that redemption has now been settled. Redemption is settled. Redemption is settled for Naomi and Ruth. And we talked about this several weeks ago. In back in those days, your husband was was everything. Your husband was where you had your security. Your husband was who could own and transfer property. In fact, the stipulations that we see in the book of Numbers in chapter 27 about the transfer of property left no sort of, of clause for widows to inherit the properties of their deceased husbands. So it was, it was important that when Elimelech brought his 
family to Moab and they were uh, they're riding out the storm of famine in Moab for 10 years in the, in the land that was the enemy of Israel. And when he goes into Moab, his two sons, Chilion and Malion, also die. They had taken on pagan wives and those pagan wives, they, they commit initially to follow Naomi back to Israel. And you see Orpah, she turns around but Ruth sticks with her mother-in-law. And so the reason this is important is Ruth comes back, and what we can infer from the story is if land has been sitting there for 10 years, it's not like nowadays where people don't touch other people's property. Back then, probably somebody was working the property that they owned. That, hey, if you're not here, I'm going to do it, you know? Like, I'll put it to use. And so Naomi tries to go, and she tries to get the land back. She can't do it. Her, she's forced into, into selling it. And so if she's forced to sell it, we know that she's not able to use the land, because what does Ruth go to do for her mother-in-law? She goes to glean in the fields and to get the scraps and to provide for the welfare of Naomi and so and and Ruth as well. And so we we see that that Naomi is not able to sell this land. The only person that can acquire this land is is another male in the family which we know and we've talked about at ancient ancient mosaic law called the kinsman redeemer. And so what we see here is there's this practice underlying this whole thing of Leverite marriage, which which we, we see in the book of Deuteronomy, talks about in Deuteronomy chapter 25, Leverite marriage was where the brother would take on the, the, the deceased, the widow of the deceased brother and perpetuate that family, would take her on as, as a spouse, would take her on and would have a kid to perpetuate the line, would buy back the property as a kinsman redeemer. And here we see that Ruth and Naomi had no hope, but what we've seen in the previous weeks is they got to work and Ruth encounters Boaz. Boaz and Ruth meet on the threshing floor. Boaz commits his love to Ruth um, at her initiation. And then what we see is at the end of chapter 3, in chapter 3, in, in verse 13, uh, we see that Boaz tells Ruth to remain there tonight because in the morning he's going to redeem her. And later on, Naomi tells Ruth, he says, My daughter, you'll learn how this matter turns out. And this man talking about Boaz will not rest until he sells, settles this matter today. So we see Boaz got straight to work. In the context of chapter 3, this is the same day. Morning has dawned, and Boaz is probably going in from the field, from the threshing floor, back to his home. And as he's walking back to his home, now the city gates were, were busy at this time of the day, at the beginning of the day and the end of the day. People coming in from the fields, people going out to the fields. And what we see is that Boaz is coming in from the fields, and he sits down at the gate because no time needed to be wasted going home. And he likely, likely finds the, the other redeemer who was closer in line than Boaz and Elimelech's uh, family. The other redeemer is probably going out to the fields to work it. And he tells him to sit down. Now city gates at this time, yes, they were built for protection, for entering and leaving, but city gates were so much more. They were the social hub of the city. It's where they 
It's where they hung out. It's where they did business. In fact, a city gate had a, had a room connected to the gate with, uh, we've seen archaeological evidence with uh, actually uh, some, some, uh, some seats that lined this room so the elders of the city could come and they could do work. They could assemble. This is where prophets spoke to the people of Israel. The gates were an important place. And so Boaz sits down and he's saying, now's the time to settle this issue of redemption with Ruth. But what does Boaz mention first? He, first, he doesn't mention Ruth. He mentions the property. And what we see about the construction in the Hebrew is that Boaz emphasizes Ruth over the property. He's more interested in Ruth than he is the property, but he uses the property first. He makes no mention of Ruth only the property to that redeemer that's first in line. Why? Why? Why would he do that? Maybe in fact, because maybe, I mean, y'all know how, how Jesus uh, commanded uh, the disciples, uh, that were actually the early church, they, they were sent out, and they were sent out as sheep in the midst of wolves, and he tells them to be, in Matthew chapter 10, verse 16, to be wise as serpents and innocent as doves. Wise as serpents and innocent as doves. Serpents, they made a plan. You go back to Genesis, it was a sinful plan. But in Genesis, the serpent had a plan. But innocent as doves, meaning that we have to have a plan, but we also have to have conviction. And so what Jesus is commanding the disciples to do is, in fact, what Boaz does here. Boaz knows that if he mentions Ruth up front, it might conflict the issue of whether he could get the redemption. He knew that his best chance at getting Ruth, because Ruth was connected to the property. His best chance at getting Ruth was to mention the property first. And what does this man do? He jumps on the property. He's like, oh yeah, I'll take the property, you know? Uh, but then after he says, oh, I'll take the property, what does Boaz say? Well, what the, by the way, with the property comes Ruth the Moabite. And why does he mention that she's a Moabite there? Maybe in fact, he's playing on the just, racial tension that Israel may have towards their hated enemy, the Moabites. You see, you see, Boaz knew the character of Ruth, but this other man didn't know the character of Ruth. In fact, he's saying, I'm going to hurt my own inheritance by doing this. And what that meant was, whatever child he, he would have through Ruth would have the same rights as his own children. And so he's probably saying here, hey man, I'm all about the property. I can give my kids a greater inheritance, but I want to add another half-pagan kid, you know? Like I want to half-breed in my family. One, it may look bad on other people. And then two, it ruins my own inheritance. Another mouth to feed, right? Not only is that another wife or to her mouth to feed, but it's another child or multiple children's mouth to feed. And so Boaz makes a plan and this plan comes to pass. He settles it. And what we see here is that the author of the book of, of, of Ruth, which is probably the prophet Samuel, if not uh, the prophet Nathan, most historians tell us, the, the, the prophet here that's writing down this story, what, he's very careful to mention the names of all those involved. Y'all remember we talked about what their names meant many weeks ago. 
all the names have some sort of meaning connected to them and and even the ones that aren't explicit we can implicitly apply where how they were embodying their name well this man isn't named at all now why there's an intention here as orpa the other moabite was a foil to ruth orpa went back and ruth goes with naomi this other redeemer in fact samuel or nathan whoever wrote this book their name disappears from history because they're a foil to boaz Boaz was the man that this man couldn't be. Boaz was the man who loved Ruth as God loved Ruth and served Ruth as Ruth served Naomi. And through this, we see that redemption has now been settled. Let's read the rest of the chapter, verses 7 through 22. Now this was the custom in the former times in Israel concerning redeeming and exchanging. To confirm a transaction, one drew off his sandal and gave it to the other. And this was the matter of attesting in Israel. We have one other account in Scripture in, in Deuteronomy chapter 27 of a sandal being passed. Well, in that time, it's because, uh, because a redeemer wouldn't redeem a young lady, and the young lady appealed to the elders of the city. The elders appealed to this man. This man wouldn't redeem her, and so she takes a sandal from him and spits in his face. So that's the other example of a sandal being taken in Scripture. But this, this, this transaction is different. The circumstances are different. We see that, that uh, even grace is shown to the one who didn't redeem. He is not getting spit in the face. But we see that the sandal signifies transaction. It's kind of like their, their version of money. You know, we use money to represent something, right? There's no inherent value in the, in the, the, the stuff that we have, right? The, what makes up money? It's like fiber and paper and all that, you know? That there's no inherent, like, that in and of itself isn't what's valuable. It's what's attached to that that makes it valuable, right? Modern-day credit cards and debit cards, there's nothing valuable about the plastic. It's what's attached to the plastic. The same thing here with the sandals. It was what was attached to the sandal that brought it value. The sandal symbolizes the passing of redemption or a great exchange. Us in the New Testament, we know the greatest exchange, right? For God made him who knew no sin to be sin so that we might become the righteousness of God. The cross is the greatest exchange. The cross beats any sandal that we could give. Let's read in verse 8. So when the Redeemer, when the Redeemer said to Boaz, buy it for yourself, he drew off his sandal. And then Boaz said to the elders and all the people, you are my witnesses. Now the word here for witness, same root word that we get the word Ebenezer from. And if you don't know anything about the Old Testament, they set up stones, Ebenezer stones, as a sign of how, God, how far God has brought them and a sign that God would continue to provide. So what Boaz is telling the people that are there, he's saying, you are my witnesses, you're my Ebenezer stone this day that I have bought from the hand of Naomi all that belonged to Elimelech and all that belonged to Chilion and Malion. And Ruth the Moabite, the widow of Malion, actually, 
This is the first time we, it's mentioned who Orpah and Ruth were married to. So now we know Ruth was Malion's wife. I have bought to be my wife, and bought is a word, it really means exchanged. It means to, to acquire. I have bought to be my wife to perpetuate the name of the dead in his inheritance, that the name of the dead may not be cut off from among his brothers and from the gate of his native place. You are my witnesses today. Then all the people who were at the gate and the elders said, y'all know in, in ancient uh, Israel, there was no word, he, the, the old Hebrew, there's no word for yes in the Old Testament. So their yes is repeating back what the person said. And so what he says, it says, their yes is we are your witnesses. May the Lord make the woman who is coming into your house like Rachel and Leah who together built up the house of Israel. May you act worthily in Ephrathah and be renowned in Bethlehem. And may your house be like the house of Perez, whom Tamar bore to Judah, because of the offspring that the Lord will give you by this young woman. These people who are attesting to Boaz's transaction to his redeeming of Ruth speak a blessing over him. And their blessing reminds them of what has already happened. Through the oral traditions, they already knew about, uh, about the house of Perez. They already knew about Rachel and, Leah, Rachel and Leah. Anybody ever read about Rachel and Leah? If you don't know, here's a brief story of Rachel and Leah. Leah's an older sister than Rachel. And they were both, they were both promised uh, to, uh, they were both promised uh, to be married to Jacob. And neither one of them could bear sons. They actually end up uh, giving their slaves to, to Jacob for him to have sons. But then the womb is opened up from, from Leah uh, and she gives birth. The womb is opened up from Leah, from Rachel. She gives birth. The Old Testament is very real. It tells us exactly like it happened. And what we see is even though these acts weren't right, even though two sisters shouldn't be marrying the same man, and even, even more so, they should not be trusting in God. They shouldn't be perpetuating the same lack of faith that their ancestor Sarah had perpetuated and giving the, the servant so that the servant could perpetuate the line. Uh, what we see here is a whole mess happening through Leah and Rachel. But what we see is through Leah and Rachel, God still blesses despite them. We see Rachel gives birth to Joseph. And the rest is history. Joseph helps lead Israel into the land of Egypt. And what we see is that Leah's descendants, the tribe of Judah, comes directly from Leah. And what I believe the, the prophet, the author, is, is writing here in the book is he's telling, he's using these examples of Rachel, Rachel and Leah that if Judah and Israel flourished through this activity, how much more will they flourish through the activity of Boaz? And he reminds them of the house of Perez. In fact, Boaz, the clan of Elimelech, descended from the house of Perez. And yet again, another scandalous story, Tamar. Anybody know about Tamar? Yeah, Tamar, uh, her husband died. And, uh, and it, to the, the other story of Leverite marriage in the Old Testament is... Tamar, uh, Judah tries to, to, to take uh, Tamar and, and get him with his younger son, Onan. But Onan refuses to conceive with Tamar. And so Onan 
is dropped dead by God for, for refusing to obey God's law. And then there's a younger brother, I forget his name, it's um, Shelah. Younger brother, third brother, he's too young for Tamar to, to, to marry. And, and the father has already seen two of his kids de- dead with Tamar. So Judah doesn't want, <laughs> doesn't want his third son to end up with Tamar. So Tamar takes matters into her own hands. She dresses up as a prostitute. She seduces Judah and she has sex with her own father-in-law and conceives a son. If you didn't know that story, welcome to the Bible, right? And through, the, through this unholy act, she gives birth to twins, and the oldest of this twin is Perez, and Boaz descends from Perez himself. And if we know, if you didn't know this, Boaz's mother, Boaz's mother was Rahab. Now, who was Rahab? Anybody can tell me about Rahab? Prostitute. And where was Rahab? What city? Jericho, right? So God works through a prostitute, so that his people can conquer Jericho and can inherit the promised land. And this prostitute who works with God and his people gives birth to Boaz. And what the author is telling us is if God can work through all this mess, how much more can he work through righteousness and the righteous acts of Boaz? I'm going to finish reading here. And we're going to see the result of Boaz's action and the genealogy that eventually leads to the line of David. So Boaz took Ruth, verse 13, and she became to him his wife. And he went to her. So this scene's taken probably about nine months later. And he went into her, and the Lord gave her conception, and she bore a son. Then the women said to Naomi, Blessed be the Lord, who has not left you this day without a Redeemer, and may his name be renowned in Israel. He shall be to you a restorer of life, a nourisher in your old age, for your daughter-in-law who loves you, who is more to you than seven sons, has given birth to him. Then Naomi took the child and laid her on his lap and began, became to him his nurse, his, his guardian, his protector." Verse 17, and then the women of the neighborhood gave him a name saying, a son has been born to Naomi. They named him Obed, and, his fa- and he was the father of Jesse, the father of David. Now these are the generations of Perez. Perez fathered Hezron. Hezron fathered Ram. Ram fathered Amamadad. Amamadad fathered Nashan. Nashan fathered Salmon. Salmon fathered Boaz. Boaz fathered Obed. Obed fathered Jesse. And Jesse fathered David. Redemption is settled. And what we see here in the last part of this chapter is redemption is secured. Not only is redemption for us been settled on the cross of Jesus Christ, but redemption is secured for all time and for all eternity. You see, redemption was not just settled for for Ruth and Naomi. Redemption was settled for all of Israel because through their actions, God would bring about the line of David, would bring about their one true king. You see, this was the time of Judges. Verse 1 tells us that this was happening in the time of Judges. In our Old Testament order, there's a reason why Ruth comes right after Judges. It's because this is happening in the same time period. And so Ruth is, uh, the, the, the faith that we see displayed through Ruth and Naomi and Boaz leads to the salvation of Israel, their one true king, David, and their one true king that 
what was prophesied in Isaiah, we tend to mention this time of year, Isaiah chapter 9, verses 6 through 7. For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and of peace there will be no end. And on the throne of David, over his kingdom, to establish and uphold it with justice and righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. It's the zeal of the Lord of hosts to do this. It was prophesied from the line of David would come the ultimate redeemer. Not just the kinsman redeemer of a of a specific family or a specific marriage or specific property, but the ultimate redeemer that would bring all of us back to the heart of God. The conclusion of the book reverses the introduction. The book begins with death and it ends with life. That's how all of our journeys can begin and end. First, we have to know that we, without Christ, we're only in a state of death. All the things that we try to do will ultimately lead to our own destruction. But that in Christ, the greater Boaz, we have redemption and we have life. And may we be like Ruth. May we be like Ruth who is so devoted. Ruth was a a pagan Moabite who showed loyalty to our mother-in-law Naomi when all hope was gone. We ourselves, like the Moabites, are separated from God. But by, by, by his great love, we have an opportunity to respond. We have an opportunity to respond, and we have an opportunity to love, and we have an opportunity to embody what Ruth embodied towards Naomi. Some scholars say that Ruth is the greatest embodiment in the Old Testament of what the love Israel should have for God and for other people. Y'all know the law, our, our mission statement is love God passionately, love people personally. Jesus said these are the two greatest commandments. All Jesus was, was doing was report, repeating the law given to Israel, Deuteronomy 6, 5. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your mind, with all your soul, and with all your might. In Leviticus 19, verses 18 and 34. But you shall love your neighbor as yourself. You shall treat the stranger who sojourns with you as native among you, and you shall love him as yourself, for you were once strangers in the land of Egypt. Ironically, it's the Moabite, the pagan Ruth, who shows Israel what the greatest meaning of love is, the greatest embodiment of human love. And for us, the greatest embodiment of human love was God himself. God so loved the world that he gave his only son, Jesus, that whoever believes in him wouldn't perish, but would have everlasting life. In our group this morning, we talked about how we don't have a high priest who's unable to sympathize with our weakness, but was tested in every way in which we were, yet without sin. Jesus was fully God and fully man, and and that's what we talk about at the incarnation, the Christmas season. We talk about God God taking on human flesh, coming here for you and for me. And so may we respond knowing that redemption is here. His name is Jesus. And he gives us an opportunity to respond. 
He shows us a love and a security greater than Boaz. He shows us a determination greater than Naomi. And he shows us a redemption greater than Ruth could ever provide. May we follow Jesus here today. May we follow Jesus tomorrow. May we follow Jesus for all time. And may we be reminded that in a dark period like the time of the judges, it doesn't matter who won the Senate or the House in our country. It doesn't matter who wins the next election. I know those are all things we need to, we need to go out. Many of us voted this week and all that stuff. It doesn't matter how dark times become. There's a light of redemption here for you and me. And that's Jesus. Let's follow him today. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you so much for showing us the story in your word that reminds us of loss and redemption. Lord, help us when, when death creeps in, when plans change, when what we have is devastated. Help us to be reminded that there's hope. There's hope in you and that anyone who calls upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. And the reason we're saved is because you loved us so much that you gave your only son to redeem us on a sinner's cross. God, help us to follow you. Help us to make that first step. It's in your name that we pray. Amen.